Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. Hey, everybody. I'm Gabe Pacheco. Make sure you join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you'll get great bonus. you get extra bonus content. It's really fun. It's really worth it. We have a great segment where we talk to Erin Neff of the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, about dating while socialist. That's a great one. Very personal. We also have some Matt Carp coming down the pike. Check out my piece I wrote on Paste about Susan Bordeaux. And again, you can always follow me at Twitter. My handle on Twitter is KT Helps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And Gabe Pacheco, his handle is Gabe underscore Pacheco. If you tweet about us, use the hashtag KT Help Show. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm Katie Helper. If you guys don't know me by now, then you never will. If you don't know me by now. Hey everybody, it's uh, the one, the only Gabe Pacheco. What if we had brought in another Gabe Pacheco, the same as to be a guest on the episode? What would you say? Like in Rick and Morty, there's clones. There's a infinite infinite universes, and each universe has its own Gabe Pacheco. Yeah, there is a comedian named Gabe Pacheco or Gabriel Pacheco. Is there one? Or am I uh, if that you guys up? Google Gabe Pacheco comedian, yeah, hopefully I'm the first one that right, comes good. up. If not, we're gonna get on all up in that SEO. The, there is a someone who is a flower arranger. Gabe Pacheco. Really? Yeah, so that's a big deal. I think he's first on the uh, search engine optimization. I hope he, he like, services um, LGBTQ weddings. You know how some florists don't? Yeah. They're like, hold on, flowers, the most heterosexual. Butch, butch manly thing. (laughs) Thing to be interested in. Right. I like that. I like how, like, genderqueer, the homophobic male florists are. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, are, I just assume that a florist were, and this is me. We're female? Yes. There you go. You see? They challenge our heteronormativity. Well, I, it's, is, it that, is it that female florists don't want men to be gay? Because those are <laughs> men that are getting taken out of the, I don't, out of the pool? I see. Like, they don't want to. But there are male florists who won't um, service. I don't want to say service. It sounds so suggestive. There are male florists who won't service gay weddings either. Right. Right. Because the wedding feel, is too much of a temptation. It feels like a temptation. <laughs> right, if we're going on the theory that they made. But you know what? We, we have to accept that, you know, you know, we don't... Everyone loves flowers. Everyone loves flowers, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with being a straight man who likes flowers. There's nothing wrong with being a gay man who likes flowers. There's nothing wrong with being a gay man who's bi-curious about flowers. I love a, a good Venus flytrap. <laughs> what... Do they actually do they actually trap flies? They do. All right, cool. That's good to know. Um, we they got like a sticky sauce on the inside, so when the fly comes in, it gets stuck, and right. then then a little clamp closes on them. Poor little flies. Yeah, I feel bad. Heartbreaking. So we have a great show for you today. We are talking to Rashad Robinson, who is the director of Color of Change, and he's going to talk to us about all sorts of campaigns, including the campaign that they just worked on, which got no big deal. But mega perv Bill O'Reilly fired, finally, to leave Fox News. So now we can all go back to enjoying Fox News. Oh, thank you. It's been been turned into a safe space. Yeah, exactly. Once again. Um, And we also have great discussion with Sarah Jaffe. That's a bonus. That's for our Patreon contributors. And we talked to Sarah about this interesting controversy over... Mello, who is a gentleman who's running for mayor in Omaha, Nebraska. Bernie Sanders endorsed him, and he's getting into a lot of trouble because he has had some problematic things in his record. But we're going to talk about this later, and there's a bit of hypocrisy in that, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But I thought that we could do something right now called Democracy Later. We've done this before, actually, where we read the headlines from Democracy Now. Oh, yeah. Welcome to Democracy Later. I'm Katie Helper. And I'm one the only Gabe Pacheco. Arkansas carried out a double execution Monday night, marking the first time in nearly 17 years that any state killed two people on the same day. Two for one deal. Yes, that any state has killed two people on the same day. It's called a double header. That's what they call it. Mm -hmm. That's when you see two uh, uh, baseball games back to back. Is that true? Yes. Well, here you see two executions back to back. So a sports euphemism for two executions. Yeah. Um, this is really disgusting. Um, what is happening is that the ma- the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, wants to execute a bunch of people before this 
lethal drug that contributes to the cocktail because they take cocktails run expires. So right. he's being very efficient in a way. He's being like he's being green. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, you want to you want to if you know your milk is going to expire in two or three days, like you need to make sure you eat all the cereal before the milk goes lumpy. Exactly. So here you need to make sure that you kill all the inmates. Right. Before the cocktail gets lumpy. Yeah, exactly. So just so you know about what happened when they tried to kill this man, 7.20 p.m., 52-year-old Jack Harold Jones was pronounced dead in the death chamber at the Cummins Unit State Prison. Infirmary workers had spent more than 45 minutes unsuccessfully trying to put a central line into his neck. According to a court filing, during Jones's execution, he was moving his lips and gulping for air, which suggests he continued to be conscious during the lethal injection. The controversial sedative, midazolam, is administered as part of a cocktail of execution drugs to make prisoners unconscious, but it's repeatedly failed to do so during other executions, leading to painful deaths. Ahead of Monday night, Jones's lawyers had argued his medical condition was likely to reduce the sedative's effectiveness, leading to an unconstitutional painful death. But this argument was rejected by a court. Then, lawyers for the second man, Marcel Williams, filed a last-minute appeal for a stay of execution following Jones's killing, arguing Williams could also experience a botched painful death. A district court judge initially granted a temporary stay of Williams' execution, but then allowed the execution to go forward. Williams was pronounced dead at 1033. It went to the Supreme Court, by the way. The Supreme Court rejected the stay, except for one judge. Guess who it was? You'll be happy. Break it down. Sonia Sotomayor is who it is. Oh, shout-outs to Miss Sotomayor. To Latinas, yes. right? To Latinx. For having some decency uh-huh. to go against this barbaric practice. Yep, yep. And so they they carried out its first execution in 16 years on Thursday. That was last week, and that killed Liddell Lee. And the fourth man is going to be killed this Thursday, Kenneth Williams. And they tried to kill eight people within 11 days this month. Some of those executions got stopped, nipped in the bud. And, you know, Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, is a Christian man, right? Because that's what people are in Arkansas. And uh, he he wished, you know, he, he talked about Easter, Happy Easter. He yeah. also, you know, quoted Martin Luther King on his um, on the anniversary of his death and on his birthday and on Martin Luther King Day. And it's just stunning to me that I'm going to go out on a, a limb and say that I'm a better Christian mm-hmm. than every single Christian. And I'm a godless Jew, godless Jewess. I'm a better Christian than every single Christian who helped execute these men. That's right. What? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Gabe just delivered his verdict. Yeah. Right. You know, but the, this, the secret of being a good Christian is all you have to do is cons- confess your sins on your deathbed. Right. Or accept the big JC right before you dr- you gasp your last breath. How? That's the get out of jail free, free card. card. Yes. My golden parachute into heaven. I like that. Okay, here's my question. How dense do you have to be to not get the takeaway from Jesus Christ's story? I mean, it's not like it doesn't end with an execution. Right. It and, ends with three. Three, okay. Yeah. And He's up on Golgotha with his with his two buddies. What's Golgotha? There's, Is that That's the hill. The murder the, hill. You see, that's why when Gabe Pacheco says I'm a better Christian than those guys. That's right. What? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. You actually bring a knowledge. You bring knowledge. But what do you think? What's worse? The lethal injection or the crucifixion? Well, I mean, yeah, I Which guess Which is worse? I guess we should Baby baby steps towards <laughs> less painful executions. I'm a progressive. Right. Incrementalist. Yeah. You know, there's a really interesting debate over whether or not doctors should participate. In fact, a doctor wrote an interesting op-ed who's yeah. opposed to the death penalty. And his point is like, it's going to happen anyway, so we should make it less inhumane. Yeah, but do you need to swab the stab wound with uh, with alcohol beforehand? Like, no, of course. Right, right, right. Get, Oh my god, an infection? Gonna, yeah. <laughs> we can't have or that. Or they're like, well, this guy's got the flu, we're gonna have to wait till he's, oh he's better before we kill him. No, I mean, they probably do do that because they're so weird and technical. There's no. there's something absurd about the formality that goes into it, too. Totally. Like, it makes me think about... Uh, like a like a restaurant where someone's got white gloves, the waiters maybe have white gloves, and then they they're like, "Well, you got to make sure that your salad fork's in the right spot. We got to make sure that we've got just the right cocktail." It's like, can't you, you know? Um, there's a million different uh, things Rule, that right. you can inject into somebody that'll kill them yes. quickly. Right, and there's this weird etiquette, right? Around they have to paralyze them first. Yeah. So I, why not just use heroin? I mean, honestly, right? That make sounds it... like it might be fun. Right. 
Yeah, morphine. is That's how they kill most people, right? Isn't morphine how people die? Well, whenever you see in the war movies where somebody's had their legs blown off yeah. and they're hyperventilating, right. and uh, and they- then the, the medic comes over and says, uh, give him a surette. And they're like, can we fix him? And they're like, give him some more of those right, surettes right. with the morphine in them. Right. So you just take take a, a heroic dose yeah. and uh, slumber. Slumber, yeah. It's- Meet Morpheus, the god of slumber. Morpheus. That's where morphine, morphine comes from. Oh, yeah. I thought I was being really clever, but that's why I actually brought it up. Um, you know, actually, it was Dr. Adam Gaffney, former guest. I was tell- telling him about this cocktail. Of course, he knew about it, but I, I was trying to commiserate. And he said that a New York Times doctor writer thinks that doctors should take part in executions. He's opposed to them. Yeah. But I get... And did you see the movie Mr. Death by Errol Morris? It's about Dr. Kevorkian? No, it's not. It's actually about this weird guy who starts out by trying to make executions more humane, and mm-hmm. then he gets, like, co-opted by Holocaust deniers. Okay. Keep it going. Tell me more. And goes to Auschwitz and, like, without any permission, starts, like, like chipping away at the walls and taking samples to prove that there were just, like, no gassing. You wow. would really, I feel so like this things, is such a you movie, actually. Things took a turn. Where things he's... took a turn for the worse or the better, <laughs> depending on your views on the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay with believing that it existed. Yeah, me too. I'm okay with that. I don't really need to challenge that. Yeah, I know. We like to think outside the box and push back against authority, but not on that issue. Also, the Germans, like, I've said this before in life, I don't know if on the show, but, like, if the Italians, if the Italians or the Spaniards had carried out the Holocaust... Maybe we could, like, push back and You'd pretend be like, it didn't happen. They probably fudged some numbers. Exactly. But these guys have methodical... You know how Germans yeah. are. They yeah. have files. They have photos. They documented Excel that. Excel spreadsheets. Exactly. Yeah. Before they even existed. Okay. This is, again, democracy later. I'm, I'm returning to Amy Goodman. Sean Hannity is facing accusations of unwanted sexual advances. Former Fox News guest Debbie Schlussel has accused Hannity of inviting her back to his hotel room and that... After she rejected his advance, he called me and yelled at me, and I knew, kind of knew I wouldn't be back on his show, end quote. While Schlussel says she didn't think the incident qualifies as sexual harassment, she says she thought Hannity was, quote, unquote, weird and creepy. But you know, Gabe, it's kind of, I guess, for Fox News, like, pretty good. And this accusation, of course, comes after Fox News' top anchor, Bill O'Reilly, was ousted last week amid revelations that he and Fox paid more than $13 million to settle five sexual harassment claims. You know, I met Sean Hannity. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Later, where we read the headlines from Democracy Now. So uh, we have some really bad news for people who like to pretend that that all Bernie Sanders supporters are racist, sexist, homophobes. And that bad news is that uh, a survey came out, a Harvard-Harris survey. um, And it's about Bernie Sanders' popularity, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, can can someone explain his popularity? Yes. How could this old white man be so popular? Well, okay. You know what? And we're going to have a special guest. Carl Bayer is going to explain that to us because we feel like it w- we would be remiss to not do that. I like using that word, remiss. I'm uh, Carl Bayer. I'm one of many people who write under this name. You can find our stuff at www.carlbeijer. That's carlbayer.com. So uh, Harvard Harris recently released a new survey that was getting some attention in the press. Uh, And among other things, uh, they asked respondents to give favorability ratings to 16 different politicians and some Trump administration officials. And among those 16 politicians, Bernie Sanders, it turns out, has the highest rating. Now, that's just at about 57% favorability rating, which obviously doesn't seem great, but it's pretty good for an American politician. Um, And it's consistent with the kind of ratings that he's been getting for the past several months. Uh, So what I think the most interesting part of this survey, though, is when you look at the demographics of uh, respondents uh, who gave Sanders favorability ratings, and what you find is that He had higher ratings among women than men, about 58% to 55%. It's like who buys all LL Cool J's albums? Ladies. Yes. Because they love Cool J. Same thing with Bernie. Who's voting for Bernie? Cool B. Ladies. Ladies. Not only ladies. Ready for this? Remember, he's the racist guy? 
Who, Bernie? Bernie's a racist? Yeah, apparently, right? And he had much higher ratings among African Americans, Hispanics, and Asian Americans than among white people. Uh, He's all the way at 73% among African Americans. And I don't think that this is actually very surprising if you've been paying attention to the polling for the last year or more uh, because Bernie Sanders always had pretty high favorability ratings among uh, African Americans. Uh, It was his preference compared to Hillary Clinton that was lower. So, you know, generally most people were saying, yeah, we like Bernie Sanders, but then a lot of African Americans said, but we prefer Hillary Clinton over Sanders. So that doesn't mean that his rating was ever low. And in fact, uh, if you look at the history of his ratings among African Americans, what you find is that it seems to have a lot to do with name recognition. So early on back in August of 2014, his name recognition was pretty near zero. Uh, And then you had a lot of respondents who said that they viewed him favorably, but that was probably just because he was identified with the Democratic primary. So if you like Democrats, then you're going to say you uh, view him favorably. Uh, But then over the ensuing months, of course, his name got out there. He became more well-known and his popularity rose in direct conjunction with his name recognition. So the more people knew him, the more people liked him. And this was uh, very evident among African Americans too, where it rose from, you know, around like 3% all the way up to by February, his favorability ratings were already at about 60%. And it was pretty clear that he was headed towards about 70 percent territory, which is where Hillary Clinton was at the time, and it's where most Democratic politicians uh, end up with some notable exceptions. So the takeaway here is pretty straightforward. Uh, Bernie Sanders derives his strongest support from people of color and from women. It is, of course, the exact opposite of the narrative that Sanders supporters are dominated by white men. Uh, That was a talking point that was crafted and propagated by the Clinton campaign during the primaries. It's one that's kind of stuck around in our discourse, I think, mostly as a way of trying to discredit the hard left and socialism with which Sanders gets identified. It uh, is kind of vindicating to see his numbers climb that this high among African-Americans. Um, it, it'll be interesting to me to see if they actually get any higher because this is around the ceiling that I was expecting. But I guess we can only just wait and see. So that's pretty crazy that this totally disproves and debunks the, I think, totally disproves and debunks the narrative of the Bernie bro. Why, yeah. why did I say Bernie bro? Like, it's not Bernie bro. I know, that's how I see it. Isn't, wait, Bernie's trying to, like, reinstate, like, uh, like a, a Handmaid's Tale type reality, correct? Like, he's he's trying to make sure that all children are born and then that we Force, harvest yeah. those those babies and sell them to the the 1%. Exactly. Give them to the 1%, right? Yes. There's an article that was written in Paste about this abortion thing. Walker Bragman wrote it. And it's basically about, as you were saying, Gabe, he wants to turn us into the handmaid's tale. But uh, Walker writes, Sanders, who boasts 100% ratings from both NARAL, Pro-Choice America, and Planned Parenthood, defended his endorsement of Keith Mello, who's running for Heath Mello, who's running for mayor of Omaha, Nebraska, saying if we're going to protect a woman's right to choose, at the end of the day we're going to need democratic control over the House and the Senate and state government all over this nation. End quote. And then Walker writes, for his part, Mello has pledged to keep his faith out of his governing decisions regarding women's health. So he he's able to juggle two things. Exactly. Right? His own right. personal views and the way that he's going to enact policy. Who cares what his personal views I agree. are? I agree. I'm not saying that to you, but... The complicated thing is that Mello did do things that were anti-choice. What did he, he did. do? He passed some legislation that said that a doctor had to tell a woman she could get an ultrasound 
She now that's very different. So from he's trying to upsell the ultrasound. Yeah, exactly. That's like when you say, "Hey, I just want a hamburger," and they're like, "You want fries with that?" Totally. You're like, "I just want an abortion," and they're like, "You want an ultrasound with that?" Exactly. And, and then you're it's not. Pressure. You shouldn't do that. Right. Don't upsell the ultrasound or the fries or the fries. Neither one is healthy because we don't want we don't want people. There's an obesity crisis. Exactly. And there's a crisis of people who who know they want abortions but don't want to get psyched out at the last right minute. or they're shamed right because there's they're shaming not of that it. committed to having the abortion right. in the first place right I mean exactly there's like enough pressure to not have an abortion that you don't need a doctor being like listen would you totally like to see to you. would you like to see the little one inside of you yeah that you're about to kill yeah oh he's got eyes already oh my god so awful yeah. And a vestigial tail, so maybe it's the right thing to do. Oh, my God. The best would be is if the doctor did it and the woman was like, hell yeah, look it. And he's like, look, like she's like, yep, that, I got to get that monster out of me immediately. <laughs> that would be really good. Yeah. So, I, the, so the joke's on you, doctor. Yeah. Um, and, and it was messed up. Like, let's be real. It was messed up because he did say that it was a compromise and that hopefully this would limit the number of abortions. So he, but the point is, people he's trying evolve. To minim, he's trying to minimize abortions, but he's like a mayor. He's going to be a mayor. In Omaha. Yeah, I now, know. I'm not an apologist for uh, pro-life mayors. No, or but anti-abortion. But I'm saying, I'm yeah. Real. Yeah. Yeah, anti-abortion. Uh, it's everybody can have abortions, you know? Yeah, I want it to be like on-demand, free. I want to pay people for them, actually. I want there to be a seamless app. Oh, my God, yes. That just brings abortion doctors to your house. Abortionless? What could it be called? Well, that's, a uh, you know. You're like, you know, that's where you, you're like, I as a man cannot make that decision for you, Katie Halper. That's right. You women need to make it, yeah. I've learned not that I can't be the voice of the voiceless because there's no such thing as the voiceless. Everyone has agency Ooh, to speak. Hot take. You know? Yeah, that's like the Eleanor Roosevelt thing. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. I've never really. Well, you, I mean, anybody can start a podcast now, so come on. You're right, but they don't all have the, the the love and support that you and I have. Oh, that's correct. Right? You know how Bill Maher does new rules? He has a thing called new rules, but I thought we could do newish rulish so we don't get into trouble for, like, patent, whatever. Newish rulish. So if you said Sanders and his supporters are all racist and sexist bros before this poll came out, you were wrong. If you say it now, you're just a liar. Newish rulish. If you support the death penalty, I'm a better Christian than you. I know you're on board with that one. Mm-hmm. Newish rulish. If you want to talk about Mello's record on abortion, which we should, you better have spoken out against Tim Kaine on abortion, Bob Casey on abortion. Now, it's okay if you didn't, but unfortunately, you are unequivocally a hypocrite, which is fine. Own hypocrite. Women can be hypocrites. Shouldn't we celebrate that? Didn't Isn't Nancy Pelosi okay with people having abortions? Uh, not having abortions? <laughs> uh, okay with people being quote-unquote pro-life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I these these women have a really interesting disorder where somehow they just don't hear about anyone being anti-choice unless it's c- connected to Bernie Sanders. It's really weird. Right. I, I can't do it. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live. F*** it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. F***ing thing sucks. So speaking of Bill O'Reilly, we are so excited to be talking to Rashad Robinson, who is the director of Color of Change, high-impact collaborative team of activists committed to making justice real for black people and passionate about designing or supporting strategic, creative, and winning campaigns. And we wanted to ask you about this case, which is really exciting, although I was saying to Gabe, we're kind of bummed we're not going to be able to enjoy Fox News anymore because Bill O'Reilly isn't there. Who are we going to watch? That's what what, what will your 8 p.m. look like now? Nothing. Crying. Mm -hmm. Crying. (laughs) But um, what the takeaway from this organizing experience is for other campaigns and what people can kind of learn from it? I think a couple of things. First, you know... On the left, we are not going to win our battles by outspending our opponents, by out-advertising them. Um, And so it will be the natural resource that we actually have, which is our people. Secondly, we made sure that we stayed out of the sort of left-right paradigm when we talked to advertisers. This was not about left or right, but about right and wrong, Mm. and really about the voices of the women who had been victims of Bill O'Reilly for years and victims of a Fox News culture that allowed it to happen. And then um, the stories of racial discrimination, the stories of um, communities being able to stand up and push back 
and force corporations to have to make a decision. This, what happened to Bill O'Reilly is not about Fox making a 180 um, or a 90 degree or any type of pivot whatsoever. It's about them looking at the bottom line and realizing that they couldn't keep this person in place, someone that they probably wanted to. Right. So what is the significance if they're not making a 180 or a 90? But what is the, what do we do now, now that O'Reilly's gone? This is clearly sexual harassment is not political ideology, but there's a lot of hatred uh, spewed by Fox News, right? So how do we challenge that also? Do we just get a more squeaky clean right. uh, version of O'Reilly? Well, 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 I think that now it's out in the air. Now that it's exposed, the next couple of cases, they this, these are not we're not starting from scratch. We're starting from a foundation that has been built, a, a conversation. And so, in some ways, the the kind of squeaky clean version could have gotten a pass if this larger narrative um, wasn't didn't exist. A couple of things moving forward that are really important. One, um, we are going to be um, going to London to present at at Ofcom's. Ofcom, uh, that's the Office of Communications. Uh, it's the government-approved regulatory and competition authority for the broadcasting, telecommunications, and postal industries of the United Kingdom. Yes. Uh, we are going to be at Ofcom's invitation invitation to present um, about the racial discrimination at Fox News um, to the regulators in London as Fox 21st Century Fox attempts to buy um, Sky Media. And so we will be um, both presenting and working to further make uh, uh, Fox um, have to answer to and be accountable to the racial discrimination, um, as well as other groups really presenting on the uh, gender bias, sexual harassment that has um, been such a part of the Fox News culture. So that's one piece. Second piece is that we are still talking to and actively engage with advertisers, many of whom are not quite ready to go back, many of whom are sort of testing the waters, and we are holding them sort of accountable for their next steps and their next behavior, and they have no reason at this point to trust Fox News. Fox News... acted slow, acted poorly, put their brands in harm's way. And so they're sort of like speedy back, um, enga- speedy engagement to go back, um, you know, will will be met with some pushback. And then we're going to continue to monitor and hold accountable and hold accountable the culture of people inside of Fox that made this possible for so long, including Bill Shine, the um, current co-president, who just signed Bill O'Reilly to the new contract, who has been named in many of these lawsuits because he covered things up for years. And so this not only sends a larger message to Fox, but a larger cultural message about the consequences for creating this type of harmful culture inside and the ways in which that harmful culture transitioned itself on air. Uh, I have a question about the sort of the enablers of the culture that are more behind the scenes. Uh, and you brought up uh, Bill Shine. Mm-hmm. Yep, what uh, were there any consequences for for him or any other people involved in this? Not Did other heads yeah. roll. Not yet. In some in some ways, it, it's it, it is we're not totally clear around sort of like the producer class of folks of who's in or out. Um, and some of that is part of what we're trying to research. You know, the first. Um, the first head of uh, the first sort of head to roll in many of this was a public was a public figure to us politicos and people who pay attention, but was not someone that anyone ever saw on air. When that was Roger Ailes, yeah. And, and in in terms of um, people who have um, sort of been the um, you know Geppetto in many ways inside of um, inside of Fox News and pulling the strings, that was um, in many ways the first real victory that allowed some of these other victories to happen. And there will be other folks on the inside that will go. None probably as sort of visible and famous as Roger Ailes was as sort of a behind-the-scenes maestro, but there will be more. Um, and, uh, and, and time will tell what the sort of next generation of Murdochs do to try to uh, create a different type of culture. But at the end of the day, um, even as they try to ad- get to a new culture because their bottom line has been impacted, the politics... And the damage that they cause will still um, be significant. So we have multiple Geppettos and multiple Pinocchios. Yes, right? we have we have a whole lot of Pinocchios. Uh, yeah, just out there groping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And also, I didn't know about um, 
the, I have to admit, I knew about the harassment stuff, but I didn't know about the racial, uh, the racist conduct that happened. I knew about the racist uh, speech at Fox News. Yes. But can you tell us more about this, what you guys have discovered has been going on there? Well, some of the gender bias had had sort of intersectional components that was about race. You know, calling a, a black woman employee hot chocolate is not just, um, you know, gender bias, but has some racial sort of um, overtones. Um, and so that that was part of it. Also, there's a, a, a whole set of cases around um, that have started to come to light around black employees being asked to arm wrestle one another, um, of, of sort of comments being made at black employees um, that, um, you know, are, are absolutely offensive and outrageous at the, at, you know, the most sort of like um, raunchy comedy show, let alone at your um, workplace. Place of employment. Right. Democracy Now! Uh, Amy Goodman said today uh, that um, New York Magazine reports seven black employees at Fox are planning to join a racial discrimination lawsuit accusing Fox's longtime comptroller of spewing racist insults for years. The employees also accused the comptroller, Judy Slater, of forcing black women workers to arm wrestle their white co-workers. In a letter to the network, the workers' lawyers write, quote, forcing a black woman employee to fight for the amusement and pleasure of her white superiors is horrifying. This highly offensive and humiliating act is reminiscent of Jim Crow era battle royals. Is it royals or royales? Well, I mean, it, it, did this happen during like a team building, like what, yeah, that would, yeah. event, or like was this during lunch? Like was the right. where, that's, that's I, such a crazy story? I mean, some of the stories we're hearing that it happened when employees were coming to um, you know advocate for themselves for oh for God. for more for more money were were you know in in moments of being reviewed, uh, and I think just an we have every reason to believe that sort of more and more of these stories are going to come out as people are feeling safer and safer about um, the potential for being heard and being believed and there being accountability. And so I think um, the airing out of of this situation um, will be important and I hope sends a message um, throughout the industry. And you're so the mission statement of Color of Change is that you are a high impact collaborative team of activists committed to making justice real for black people and passionate about designing or supporting strategic, creative and winning campaigns. So what made you decide to go after Bill O'Reilly and what makes you guys decide to go for the campaigns you go for? Because you guys have a lot of campaigns and there sadly are so many things to choose from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of our, our work, we were founded 10 years ago, in the, 11 years ago, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, that moment when uh, black folks were literally on their roofs demanding the government do something and people were left to die. And while it illustrated a whole lot of things we know about generational poverty, geographic segregation, the ways that the media climate, um, you know, created a culture that was hostile to black people, climate change, criminal justice, at the heart of it, no one was nervous about disappointing black people. And when institutions like media, government, and corporations are not nervous about disappointing your community, all sorts of things can happen. And so we were founded sort of in that moment, a single email to a thousand people. The email actually said uh, Kanye was right. It was sent right after the um, telethon where Kanye West said George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Please call. We don't send out emails to say Kanye was right anymore. We made T-shirts that I can't wear to the gym. Right. Um, Did you blind CC that? That was a blind CC, though. <laughs> a blind CC. Yes. Yes. And um, and so now we've got um, and so now we've got this moment. Um, where there's a whole host of issues that impact black people every day and impact all of us. And what we try to do is identify these moments of leverage where we can channel the presence of an issue into the power to actually make change. And so we work across media justice, economic justice, voting rights, criminal justice, and a host of other 
issues, but really trying to find the strategic lever. So in this moment around O'Reilly, which was animating our members, animating the larger public, and for years we had been sort of engaging behind the scenes in campaigns around Fox and O'Reilly Factor, specifically targeting the advertisers. We had figured out strategically that there was nothing we could do with Fox. They had made a decision about how they were going to do business. But the question was for corporations who come to our communities and say, buy our products or use our services, what were they going to do? And so part of the strategic campaigning was communicating behind the scenes to these companies, um, spending a lot of time with letters back and forth, with phone calls, um, with kind of uh, diversity departments, PR departments, um, inside of corporations, trying to channel for them what a public campaign would look like, while also mobilizing our members on the outside. And then once we could get a critical mass of members who signed a petition, getting them to then move to phone calls, um, getting them to move to other actions on on um, O'Reilly Factor. The idea of this in terms of our media advocacy work, which is different than some of our other work, which may be about rules changes or policy change, is that we've got to you know, raise the floor on what's acceptable um, because media has such a tremendous impact on setting the rules of society, the rules of what's okay or not okay to say, the rules about how people can be treated or not, the sort of unwritten rules of culture. And that, for me, um, is just as important as the written rules. The unwritten rules determine whether or not a policy is enforced, whether or not um, someone is treated fairly. I always say that um, in this moment of black lives where we've seen so much conversation around police accountability, it's already illegal to kill an unarmed black person. The question is, is whether or not our culture um, and our laws are going to be enforced in a way that's fair and equitable. And that's how we change the larger conversation. And we do it by building power and by going back to that moment in the start of Katrina by making decision makers nervous about disappointing us. So there's a lot of um, power in visual imagery, right? I mean, you mentioned Black Lives Matter police brutality. I mean, how a lot of the awareness is because of cell phone footage, right? And I think a lot of the awareness of Katrina was because of what um, aerial footage. Can you talk about that and how that... Absolutely. I think, I think visuals um, are so important to, especially in this age of participation where we are carrying our phones um, and we have access to be able to um, move information very quickly. But we have this like saying in theory at Color of Change that we can't mistake presence for power. Presence is awareness, people talking about an issue, people paying attention to it. And, and um, presence is also like having a black president, uh, having a pop celebrity that can stop the Internet when she announces she's pregnant. All of those things are important. And presence is important. But oftentimes we mistake that for actually changing the rules. And so for us at Color of Change, we think the videos are important, the, the footage is important, the stories are important. But how do we take that information in the moment when people are seeing it and give them the most strategic thing to do to leverage their power to make change, the most strategic target. So instead of people just sharing the video and giving their sort of, you know, best rants on Facebook or or most powerful 140 characters, how do we give them the thing that will like move that energy at a target to force people to do the thing that we need them to do? And so what did you do with Katrina, for instance? So a couple of things in the Katrina moment. And I wasn't um, the leader of Color of Change at the time. I um, came to Color of Change about six years ago. Uh, but a couple of things. So the first and foremost thing was that Color of Change made very clear demands and, and gave people the ability to call on the federal government around its response, to give people who were seeing what was happening and were giving to the Red Cross, uh, which can or sometimes is a good thing, but doesn't change anything from a systemic policy-wise or any systems. Right, it's just charity. It's charity. It makes people feel good, but it doesn't make us any better for the next time something happens. A release valve for the uh, capitalist monster's... Yep. Worst offenses. Yeah, absolutely. And gives everybody uh, that feeling that they can tell people what they right. did. Um, mm, I April, feel good now. April yeah. 14th, right? Yeah. Um, and um, and so, so, so to that extent, uh, 
we um, we did a couple things. The first thing we did was we forced the federal government um, and moved our members, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who signed that first sort of petition to call in a response. Then we did a, a couple of other things. One was we um, worked uh, to fight for voting rights protections for Katrina survivors who were um, who had been displaced and were going to be losing their voting rights. If you remember, it was um, late in the summer when Katrina hit and we were heading right into an election. And, um, and a lot of people, the displaced people, many of whom who ended up in Harris County, which is Houston and Texas, who ended up in other parts of the Gulf Coast, were going to be... Um, um, we're not going to be allowed to vote. And so we, we worked very hard and got voting rights restored. Then we worked on a whole set of other sort of um, economic recovery programs, issues with HUD, um, and a host of other things, all sort of giving people very clear things they could do that were beyond sort of putting money in the pot of a big institution. Then moving that community over time into a wide range of other actions, taking on criminal justice fights, media justice fights, like the two-year campaign that Color of Change led to force Glenn Beck off the air, which was a campaign that over 230,000 Color of Change members engaged in that had... Um, uh, over 300 advertisers leaving. So the last episode of the Glenn Beck show was uh, those advertisers on the show were like that company that you put gold in an envelope. You They send it in and they melt it down and send you back cash. And that Invisalign um, right. commercial, actually Invisalign showed back up on O'Reilly towards the end as um. well. Um, and, uh, those were the companies, not the sort of blue chip advertisers helping to really build a playbook for the organization of how do we um, leverage the uh, economic, political, and cultural capital, the, the presence of black people, in translating that into forcing corporations to have to make a choice about their behavior. The same way we can force a politician to make a choice about their behavior. All of that is in service of finding the sort of most direct and strategic thing to do when crisis hits and people needs a lifeline. Tell us about organizing in the post-Trump world. So, you know, right after the election, we really thought about how do we pivot? How do we think about who we are as an organization at Color of Change? We did a lot of work this past election cycle trying to um, kick out and bad district attorneys and elect good district attorneys, really as sort of a movement moment around criminal justice. How do we give people something clear to do, district attorneys being the most powerful actors, and really thinking about coming into this moment that was true opposition. You know, we had delivered petitions to the White House and called on President Obama to do things, but we were also inside of the White House. I met with the president multiple times. And and recognizing the difference, right, of what we were heading into. And the first thing was understanding the threat. Unlike President Obama, who was a change candidate, Donald Trump is a change the rules candidate. And that archetype is much different. And so really helping and communicating to our members what that looked like. Uh, judicial rulings might not get implemented. The ways that we understand policy happens um, isn't always the same thing around getting around a table and making compromises. Um, and so as a result, we can't simply legal our way out of this or policy our way out of this or nonprofit executive direct our way out of this. Um, it's a different type of narrative and movement building that we need. And so first, we really developed an opposition framework. One was the three type of leaderships that we felt were needed in this moment. One was um, mediators. And we felt sort of being generous that 5% of us should be mediators in this moment and no more. And, and, and mediators, right, they, they, they find the ways that we can work with this administration from an opposition perspective, the things that we can sort of um, do together, how to get information back and forth. Of then, us, you mean color of change? I mean, or, I mean um, of a larger opposition movement. Okay. How does color of change see itself in this? But what? But before we can even figure out how we see ourselves in this, recognizing that there's a larger ecosystem. Then yeah. fighters, and so color of change is not a mediator organization. Okay, we Got are it. we, right. okay. but 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 someone should be mediator. Sure, right. Five okay. percent and yeah. only five and only five percent. Right. Yes, yeah. and and that feels generous to me. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're mean of the of the resistance um, of the or of people organizing against Trump. Five percent of that should be dedicated to mediation. Mediation. Okay, got it. Um, then we say sixty-five percent should be fighters, and fighters hold the line. And in particular, the way they're holding the line is they're not going to Trump 
hat in hand asking for anything, but they are holding enablers accountable. The cultural, media, government, political, the Bill O'Reilly's of the world, the Ubers when they want to decide to um, be join a business council, they are forcing the type of defections and desertions that are necessary to isolate this administration and make it hard for them to sort of do their work. And then the final 30%, which I think the folks on the left, and I oftentimes uh, don't use left and right, I talk about uh, the future and the past, mm -hmm. um, but um, the folks in the future, uh, <laughs> the, left. The, 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 the 30% um, need to be winners. And I don't mean winning an argument or winning an election. Uh, I mean winning real things for people. At this point, it's going to be at the local level, but winning things that make people's lives better. Because um, oftentimes um, we go and try to have a rhetorical conversation about why we're better without being able to point to the real things that we've done. And as a result, we have a brand problem um, a brand problem that uh, really animated itself this the last election cycle. So on the right, uh, Donald Trump was like a, um, like a big budget Hollywood movie with all those um, plot twists and bombs and explosions, you know, the movies where the empire is saved, the guy gets the girl and people go out, you get your drinks with, with your friends, but you don't really want to like talk about the plot twist that didn't make sense. Right. And on the left, it was the documentary. And um, I like documentaries, but the challenge with the documentary here is that um, it, the genre requires everything to be accurate and right and line up. People forgive the That's plot really twist right. on the big budget Hollywood movie. They don't forgive it with the documentary. Yeah. And so the problem That's with a documentary that says it's standing up for working people and takes its cues from Wall Street and Walmart, it doesn't line up and people won't forgive it. People, and people didn't forgive it. And as a result, we um, have a, a problem of being in a words um, framework rather than an action framework. And by action, I mean brand actions that actually show people what you mean. So you give back money to polluters if you say you, the environment mm. is important. You have Thanksgiving dinner and you stand with Walmart workers if you say that that's what you care about. But you actually show up in real and powerful ways because I believe that the big thing with all of this is that people will probably come to hate Trump as they already are, but that does mean that does not mean they will choose us, right? As a result, that's so fascinating. That's such a great uh, analogy with the with the films, right? Because I feel like what Trump had on his side was that no matter what he did, it was okay because he breaks the rules, right? Like you were saying, you forgive the plot inconsistencies because he was the not the change candidate, but the change the rules candidate, right? Yes. So when he grabs women by the p word. That's okay because he's saying F you to all norms, right, and all the things that we're used to. So there was so – I really feel like there wasn't a single thing he could have done that would have broken his narrative of being outside politics, business as usual. The What would have broken is if he tried to be business Exa as usual. Right, exactly. Right. Um, he never – he always delivered because what he was promising was so ridiculous, over the top, and not specific. Whereas with Hillary, you're – yeah. And you have really, and, yeah. and, and you have to align with your brand. Right. Things have to connect with their brand. When, when corporations – um, politicians or anyone goes off brand, it's oftentimes a problem. But not only do you have to be on your brand, but it has to be all connected, right? Like, I like to think about, like, uh, Obama was more like the romantic comedy in this whole thing. Like, um, you like the romantic comedy, you like... You enjoy it. It makes a lot of money. Um, you know that's not really your life. Um, and you roll your eyes at some of those things. But the really good ones, like, you'll see a couple of times. Right. Um, feel good. Yeah, yeah. They, are, they are feel good. They make you feel good. They're intended to make right. you feel They're good. They're appealing and, ch and charming. And, yeah. Never mind that divorce is, uh, you know, more than 50% of uh, <laughs> what happens you know, to life. couples. Yeah. It's not actually going to be your life. <laughs> right, right. You yeah. are, like, never going to, like, be that good. As someone who's, like, <laughs> sat across from, like, Obama right. a couple of times and, like, been to the White House, like, like you know, like, you, like, you don't get that many things said to you and not get angry. Right. Like, in public. Yeah. Like, right, right. Like, I would like, lost my stuff more than, right, more right. than once. But, but that, um, 
but he was on brand. Yeah. And, and the problem for Hillary is that she tried to present a brand that was not um, fully authentic and did not line up. And people, and it was a brand that also, like, people did not forgive um, the plot twist. Right. Because her thing was policy and specificity, right? It wasn't bold. I mean, can we, uh, I'm, we're, I'm, I'm a Bernie bro. I, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm a feminist Bernie bro. Um, and Gabe is a, what do you, you a Ch- the Chicano Bernie bro? The resident Chicano Bernie bro is how you introduce yourself? I'm all yourself? about it, man. I'm all day. about, you know, I'm just bro. I'm just a bro. Just a bro, yeah. I'm a dude bro. Dude I'm bro. a Chicano dude bro. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. So Bern, Bernie is bro. another example. I yeah. don't have like a movie analogy for <laughs> no, him. No, it's funny. But he's a definitely example of like a brand that made sense. Right. Like it lined up. Like who would have imagined that he would have done that well um, in, in when yeah. he first announced that he would have been that close to the nomination, uh, given how far, um, and, I, and I'm not talking politically, but how far he's um, he's situated himself outside the establishment for so long uh, right. to be able to amass the type of energy and support that got him to this moment and has kept him in this current moment as a as a player within the conversation. Right. What do you think... Um how much of this, um, like, I always think about Jennifer Palmieri, who is Clinton's comms director, uh, saying that, you know, the, the answer to protest is not fight for 15. It's not $15 an hour. It's um, it's boycotting Nordstrom's. And that, to me, was, like, such a scary response um, and the opposite of the takeaway from the election. What do you think the takeaways are, and how can we communicate that to people who, because people are angry. They're really resentful, mm-hmm. and I get it. Um, but well, well, the first thing, with all due respect, like I'm not going to go to Clinton's calm people for like my advice right, on what course. to do next. Right, right. Like, I'm just saying like, that as a you know, simple. Yeah. I don't. Right, right. Totally. I just <laughs> yeah. mean that was a sign. I was yeah. my my jaw hit. No, the all due. I mean, I mean, I mean, all due respect to her. She's had right, like right, a career sure. that got yeah, her to yeah. that point. I'm like right. totally like cut her off for losing, but right, also right. like the op- the the people who were in charge don't get of, to now be right, the opposition exactly. and get to tell us Very, what to do. Like that's what happened. Like like they don't get to become the resistance like they you had your chance that's what happened right it didn't work yes we fight countries who um who's like who's um, resistance whose whose leadership suddenly then turns into the resistance yeah. we've sp- you know like right. we, 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 yeah. we spend considerable amount of energy trying to make sure those places become real democracies right. we regime change them uh, yes not, not yes, the best and, yeah, solution, and, and that's been so yeah, successful, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I say that to say that, um, you know, I I don't think it's either or, and the fighting to hold Nordstrom's accountable has to end in some sort of rules change at the end. Like, what do you get after you like force Nordstrom's not to cover, not to take, you know, Ivanka Trump stuff? It has to end, and that is why um, my framework that I've been in color of changes framework that we've been trying to advance that we do have to fight, but we actually have to win too. Right. And so the problem here, right? That and it's the thing that the the Clinton campaign wanted to do, right? They spent all their time talking about Donald Trump, and that was fighting, and they got into the fighting mode. So it's like let's fight Nordstroms, and as an organization that doesn't take any big corporate money, we don't take corporate money at Culture. In fact, we're the only national black civil rights organization that does not, which means that that's why we're able to run some of these campaigns because I'm never on the phone worried about if I'm going to be able to pay a staffer's salary if I go after a particular target. Right. So it's a choice that we've made. We are invest in the fight, but we recognize that if you don't win real-world victories, and part of what we're doing now is electing district attorneys who will actually move policies and practices around drug reform and around bail and a whole host of other issues that make people's lives actually better so that People, people understand that their political participation matters. And the reason why we get into this in the first place is so that people can have a more human and less hostile world to live in. And if that is not the reason why we're doing it, if we're just doing it because like we want good jobs and we want to be um, in powerful positions, then um, people have every right 
not to side with us, right. to not stand with I, us. I mean, the da- I thought what she was doing, which was so dangerous, was saying, no, it's not about $15 an hour. It kind of goes back, goes back to the charity versus justice mm-hmm. discussion, right? Like, yeah. no, let's not make policy changes. Let's do a symbolic thing. Um which I just find I don't yeah. Well, it's also it's also like I think it's also telling that she picked fifteen, um, right. which is part of um, part of the lack of vision mm. that the Clinton campaign right. had on almost right. every policy where they like played small ball like. Like if you're gonna lose, lose because like you like you you, you try to take us to the next level. Don't and 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 at every turn, it's why she lost in 08 too. Right. It's why she because she couldn't tell people that she was wrong for the Iraq War, <laughs> and so at every point in right. the you know that's the reason why like a black man named Barack Hussein Obama like you know I remember right. meeting President Obama back when he was running for the United States Senate, and I was like a young field staffer, and and I was working living in D.C. and I met him at a Congressional Black Caucus um, event. Like someone had given me a ticket to go, and I put on like my one suit, and I remember showing up, and a friend introduced me to. Um, um, then State Senator um, Obama, and I remember him being very like law professory. And then the friend followed up the next day and they said, "Hey, like we've got these jobs in the campaign. You could come to Chicago." And I remember talking to my dad, who's like a race man and like has always pushed me. Uh, and I remember him saying, "Like a black man named Barack Hussein, mm. Barack Obama, Barack Obama will never be elected into the United States Senate." And I was like, "Why did you name me Rashad Robinson right, then? Right. Why did you do yeah, that? Right, right, right. <laughs> Why did he set you up? Yeah, yeah, Why did he set yeah, you up? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like they lost by not endorse. They had to be pushed to endorse fifteen, and then their takeaway is." Don't do 15. I mean, there's such a weird, like, refusal to acknowledge reality or, or the facts on the ground. The subtext was just curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. If like, we're going to compare gonna say, stuff to shows yeah. and movies and stuff, yep. right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's like curb your enthusiasm, except if you did a screening of curb your enthusiasm that no one showed up to. And then you said, again, no, what we have to do is show curb your enthusiasm. You know, if, like, it's post-election. Yep. Like, yeah. Um, so why did Bern, you know, this this uh, poll came out, this study, the Har- Harvard-Harris poll um, that looks at Bernie's favorability, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and he has a higher favorability among women and African-Americans. I guess I don't, it's not very intersectional to represent it that way, but that's yeah. how they do it. Among women, African-Americans, and among um, white people and men. What was the disconnect during the primaries? Why was there among older, not younger, because among younger people he did better than Clinton, but what was the disconnect? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders was introducing himself to America in many ways. And and it was a state-by-state process that um, each state has different rules for how um, a primary is run. And, and so it's not sort of the classic, like, single-day popular snapshot that elections can oftentimes be. And so he was... Um, building energy and, you know, um, I think like in some ways like people settled on Clinton not because they liked her better than Bernie Sanders. People settled on Clinton because there was a case made that she was the most electable and people wanted, people were afraid of what the alternative might look like. Mm. And so it was not actually a popularity contest Mm. that got um, Hillary Clinton, and I can, and I would argue that if there had been another candidate that, um, and this is not to say that Bernie Sanders isn't mainstream, but it's to say that he is not as as the sort of socialist, democratic socialist senator from Vermont. He is not. Um, he did not. He was introducing himself, and so if there was a a kind of another candidate, a Joe Biden in the race, yeah, def- yeah. um, I, I would argue that the primary may have looked a lot different. Right. Although, again, I mean, when we look at where he started, it's like phenomenal. And part of that is his, I think, it's it's contradic- it's like a, it's it's hard because I think part of it, yeah, he's not as, obviously he's not a mainstream Democrat, but he has this authenticity and this connection to populism. And it's not, I hate when people compare his populism to Trump's as if they're the same thing. I mean, the way I think that you answer populism on the right is that you are bold on the left. You don't offer these micro-targeted, mini, you know, incremental things. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, sorry, I just got 
I, I agree. I think Joe Biden could have won. I think Obama could have won a third term. And I actually don't think it's even po- because of policy. I mean, I think it's because of presentation. I think it's because Obama and Bill Clinton, you know, when Hillary said, I'm not a natural politician like my husband or the president, like that is the Democrats problem is that when they have people who can sell it well and distract from their policies not being there. So I'd I'd say we should be thankful that Hillary Clinton ran to raise awareness to the concept of democratic socialism yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. Because if it was any other candidate, uh, Bernie would have been eclipsed by their relative charisma. Yeah, but he has that anti-charisma that's charismatic. Not the, to say the, that he doesn't, right, but right, right. like in contrast. Right. It, the it, contradictions were so stronger. heightened right, 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 yeah. by... And people were looking for something else. Yeah. Anything. Anything. Lincoln else? Chafee. Yes. Oh, my God. The Remember granite. that? Remember Piece that? Of granite, that granite <laughs> man. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the Bernie Bro narrative? Um, I mean, yeah. like, how do you think that's been used to kind of delegitimize Sanders and also Sanders supporters who are not straight white men? So I find it complicated because, on one hand, uh, Bernie Bros like to be called Bernie Bros, and they've, like use that term as endearment and have captured it and um trying to reappropriate they've it. They've reappropriated yeah. it. Reappropriated it. Um um but I think felt a level of comfort with it. And and I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean that as like um that they're uh as someone who um has friends in sort of the Bernie Sanders world who did not um make uh any type of endorsement throughout the primary, our organization stayed out of the primary. In fact, we um, um, believe that both candidates had some work to do to get to our issues. And so we were like supporting the effort for the candidates to like do the work they needed to do. And we actually like had real words for the Congressional Black Caucus PAC, in fact, a campaign when they sort of came out, um, didn't endorse Donna Edwards in Maryland, who was running for Senate in the primary, and endorsed um, Clinton before South Carolina, um, while Black Lives Matter and other activists were pushing both candidates on the issues. So we really stayed out of it. I I think that the Bernie's, the the Bernie Sanders... um, uh, you know, supporters, some of the most ardent um, folks um, of color who I, like, love and, and appreciate, like Winnie Wong and um, and Simone Sanders and others, uh, I think, you know, did their best to sort of make a really strong case. And for me, I felt like... Nina um, Turner, Ben Jealous. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, like, Nina Turner and Ben Jealous. Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. Nina I'm Turner just, could sell yes, me. I mean, yes, it's, yes, I feel like she yes. could sell me on fascism. Yes. She's such a great she's, speaker. She's, and, 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 she's so, and so smart um, right. and yeah. so clear. And, um, and you know, we, we did our best at Color right. of Change to try to help her get elected as uh, Secretary of State of Ohio a couple of um, years ago, which would have been really helpful um, for a whole host of reasons of having someone who believes in fair elections. Um, I say all that to say that there was a lot of work done. I feel like some of the Bernie bro stuff is more inner movement than like man on the street, woman on the street. I think people in the outside of like the political world actually um, came to learn more and more about Bernie Sanders, saw a diverse array of spokespeople speaking out for him. in the end, many really, like, wanted Hillary Clinton to win. I think people who, like, didn't love Hit Clinton and were annoyed with her, there are many people that wish she would have won now. Right. Uh, and I think all of this uh, for a mo- for many movements that are gaining their feet and energy in this new age of participation with technology, all of this speaks to the importance of elections and contending and um, doing our best to get the right people in office, but also doing our best to cultivate a new crop of leaders. Because whether it's Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, we have a generation problem Mm. in terms of um, the people that we are sort of putting up and who 
is leading us into the future. Kamau, uh, what's his last name? I did look. Uh, Kamau, the Black Lives Matter DSA's uh, candidate. I'll I'll record it later. But he's that's an inspiring win, I think. Yes, in, um, in, in Georgia. Yeah, right? Georgia, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Rashad. And where can people find you in Color of Change? And what do you want people to do? The takeaway: What should they do? The one action or the know? one action? The first thing I want you to do is I want you to join us by um, either going to colorofchange.org or texting the word fight to two two. Five five six eight. Text the word "fight" to two two five five six eight. It'll sign you up for the next set of Color of Change campaigns and bring you into the community of activists, Black folks, and their allies of every race who are taking action on the most important issues. You can follow me on Twitter or follow Color of Change on Twitter. I'm Rashad Robinson. It's Color of Change. Um, all of those things are ways that you can engage with us and become part of the. Um, movement. And at Color of Change, we always sort of end things by saying that we do this work um, until justice is real. Nice. Well, thank you so much. And it's uh, Khalid Kamau. I'll just say it so I can put it back in. Well, I love, so you'll do this work until justice is real. That it sounds like you're not going to be able to retire anytime soon. <laughs> well, there's not also to minimize your achievements. <laughs> there's but... also a baton to be passed as well, and so right. and so I have no intention of dying at my desk at Color of Change, but mm-hmm. I have every intention of trying to build the type of infrastructure for um, Black people and people of all races to uh, make the type of change they want to see in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you so oh, much. Oh no, thank.